I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm 32. This morning I'll be in the English Standard Version. Uh, the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you are the Christian Standard Bible. It should be pretty close to follow along in both of those good English translations. It's page 487 on the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Just a point of personal privilege. I ask that you pray for my wife's safety as she travels home from uh, her aunt's funeral uh, in Central Florida. She went home this weekend uh, for that. And uh, seeing these videos of Mission Dignity and those uh, faithful wives who serve alongside their husbands, I just am grateful for my bride and all that she does uh, to support me and our family in this ministry. And uh, so just pray for her as she makes her way home today, um, as she ministered to her own family. A beautiful Christian uh, celebration of life. Uh, her aunt Doreen was a believer, praise the Lord. And uh, the gospel was preached to all of Christina's other, uh, well, her mother is one of nine. And so the other seven remaining aunts and uncles got to hear uh, the good news of Jesus Christ uh, this weekend. So now if you found Psalm 32 in your Bibles, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. A Maskeel of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing grace. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we find in Christ alone. God, I pray now that as I preach from Psalm 32, that Jesus would be exalted, that your word would be clearly heard and understood, and that the Holy Spirit would move in power in people's hearts and lives. Lord, transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's safe to say that cancel culture 
is rampant in Western society. Have you ever wondered, perhaps, how things got to this point? When I, uh, when I mow my lawn, I often listen to audiobooks. Um, I started a book that I ended up finishing on the trip to and from New Orleans called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. In it, he argues that the values that Western society prizes and champions, like equality and justice and consent, the importance of education and other similar values, are all products of the incredible influence that Christianity has had on the West. Now, the fascinating part of his thesis is that the unhinging of those values from the Christ of Christianity has left us with all of the virtues we love to signal, but with none of the personal love and forgiveness that comes along with Christianity. So any breach of those values comes with the full wrath of a culture that assumes you shouldn't break an assumed code of ethics that, although in many cases may be distorted, is inherited from Christianity's influence. It's the air we breathe. But that same culture has no way of offering redemption, no way of offering forgiveness to its transgressors because it has divorced Christ from Christianity. It's a fascinating book, and I'm not sure I agree with every jot and tittle of what he writes, but uh, the point of me sharing that today is that forgiveness, I think, is just such a radical thing for our culture these days. But forgiveness is not just a lesson for the culture out there. The truth is that we all need to understand the nature of sin and forgiveness. And today's message from Psalm 32 is just that. It's a lesson about sin and forgiveness. It's a lesson that I believe the Holy Spirit is teaching us today through the pen of David. The title of the psalm itself helps us know this is indeed a lesson. The technical term, masculine of David. A masculine is thought to mean that this is a didactic song. That means that it's a psalm that teaches us something. It teaches us a lesson. That clue from the title, along with other verses in this psalm, have led many to believe that the occasion, uh, the inspiration or the circumstance in which David was writing this psalm was the incident with David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now, if you're new to the Bible or perhaps you need a refresher or haven't been to Children's Bible Fellowships where they go through the whole Bible, uh, you might want to know a little bit about that backstory where David was king of Israel. And at the time when kings were supposed to be going to war, David stayed back. Mistake number one. And then he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Mistake number two. But then to cover it up, he tried to arrange for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, to come, or Uriah, excuse me, Uriah to come home. And uh, that didn't work out so well because Uriah was more faithful than David thought. And so he arranged for Uriah's murder on the front lines of battle. So David is an adulterer and a murderer, and he was trying to get away with it. Verses 3 and 4 of this psalm, I think, reflect on this idea of David's attempt to conceal, to hide, try and get away with sin. 
But then, of course, we remember the story. Nathan comes and confronts David. Tells the story of a, a man who has a precious lamb, his precious possession, and that lamb is taken from him. And David says, this is an awful tragedy. Like, we need to go get that guy. And Nathan turns her finger and says, you are the man. That's you. You've taken his precious wife from him. And David confesses his sin to the Lord. And so many of us will remember that Psalm 51, in fact, the title itself of Psalm 51 says that the occasion of that psalm was David's confession to the Lord after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so Psalm 51 is David's uh, confessing to God of his sin. Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's his confession before the Lord. It's very similar to verse 5 of our psalm today, where David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Then Psalm 51, if you follow the train of thought throughout that psalm, it concludes with a vow that David would then teach others about the forgiveness he finds in God. Psalm 51 and verse 13 is on the screen. It says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is promised to God as he confessed his sin before the Lord in Psalm 51. He made a promise to teach others about sin and about forgiveness. And I believe Psalm 32 is the fulfillment of that vow, that promise that he would teach a lesson to us about sin and forgiveness. So let's consider this lesson that David taught. It is so important, again, not just because our society is thirsty for it, but because this psalm strikes at the very heart of the gospel itself. I'd like to commend to you three parts of David's lesson on sin and forgiveness. He teaches us first the importance of acknowledging our sin. Second, the many aspects of God's forgiveness. And then third, the actions of the godly. So look with me first to the acknowledgement of sin. The acknowledgement of sin. Psalm 32 was Augustine's favorite psalm. History informs us that he had it inscribed on the wall next to him before he died in order to meditate on it better. He told others that he liked it because he said, quote, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself a sinner. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. David teaches us this lesson. We must all acknowledge that we are sinners to the Lord. We've seen David do that in verse 5. Look at it again in your Bibles. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now, even in the Old Testament, with all of its trappings and the priests and everything, he didn't go through a priest. He went directly to the Lord and confessed his sin before him. And scripture says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This verse, verse 5, mirrors in its language many of the technical words that David mentions in verses 1 and 2. 
where he uses four evils, four words for evils of sin. Transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. And so those are mirrored here in verse 5. I just want to dig in a little bit back in verses 1 and 2 and look at those individual words because they convey the various aspects of our nature, our sin nature. First word in verse 1 is transgression. It's the Hebrew word pesha. Now this word signifies the passing over a boundary or doing what is prohibited, crossing the line, so to speak, a transgression. And then there's the English word sin, which is the Hebrew word chata. It signifies the missing of the mark, not doing what is commanded. It's often taken to express sinfulness in nature, that our very nature is sinful, producing the transgressions in life. The third word in verse 2 is this word iniquity. That's the Hebrew word avon, which signifies what is turned out of its proper course or situation. Anything that's morally distorted or morally perverted, iniquity then is contrary to what is just and true and good. And then the fourth word is deceit or ramaya in Hebrew. And it just means fraud guile, deception. So David uses these four words to get at the very facets of sin, the multifaceted aspects of it. Now, if you were looking for a single definition of sin, I would commend to you the New City Catechism's answer to question number 16. I keep this down here just in case. I've got this one. It's the little uh, kid's version. In question 16, some of you might know this, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. That's the kid's version. The adult version says sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death, and the disintegration of all creation. That's a fantastic definition of sin. And notice how that definition provides uh, an account for the effect of sin on David physically. You see that? That it results in our death and the disintegration of creation. Look in verses 3 and 4 of your Bibles, and you'll see sin impacts our souls. It impacts our bodies. David teaches us to acknowledge it before the Lord and experience the gift of God's amazing forgiveness. So consider now with me the aspects of forgiveness taught in this psalm. Like the four evils mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of sin, there are also four aspects of forgiveness that are described. So for example, whereas we saw in verse 1 the term transgression, Notice David says that that transgression must be forgiven. Now the concept behind that word means to bear away, to be born away. And the background uh, from the Old Testament is the idea of the scapegoat ceremony in the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would put Israel's iniquities, rebellions, and sins. Notice the same three technical words surrounding the words of sin found in Psalm 32 the high priest would put all of that upon the head of the goat 
and then that goat would bear it away, never to be seen again. And that sin-bearing concept is central to the Old Testament idea of atonement, of being made right with God. So David says in verse 1, blessed, that word is like happy, joyful is the man or woman whose transgressions are borne away, taken on the scapegoat away from the camp. And the second thing we see, the word translated sin is kata in verse 1, is that that sin must be covered, meaning hidden from sight. Our sin is so odious, so abominable to God, that it must be put out of his sight. And then thirdly, at the beginning of verse 2, that word translated iniquity, meaning what is perverse or distorted, David says it must not be counted against. That's meaning not reckoned to the sinner's account. Now this word uh, count is elsewhere translated impute, which is a little harder to understand if you're uh, new to the Bible or new to you know, older English or terms that are kind of technical. But it's a very important term that a person's iniquity would not be counted against them. And uh, Kim Rice will like this. It's kind of a bookkeeping term, right? Like an accountant keeping ledgers, you know? This is not too hard for us to understand. I think even kids in the room can understand if you've done something wrong, it's going against you. Like it's going to go in your bad column, right? You've done something wrong, it's going to count against you. But David says... Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count your iniquity or your sins against you. Now this word count is the word used by Paul in Romans to explain how God writes our sin to Christ's ledger or to Christ's account and punishes it on him while at the same time writing Christ's righteousness into our account, crediting our good side. It takes our sin and puts it on Jesus and takes Jesus's obedience and goodness and places it in us, on us. That's why Paul quotes these particular verses from Psalm 32 in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, because it uses the same word count, that is also used in Genesis 15, verse 6, when, when uh, the Bible describes that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to him. It was credited to him. So Paul sees these two words, the same word in Hebrew being used in Psalm 32, in, Psalm, or excuse me, in Genesis 15, and he says that the, the blessing is for the one whose sin is not counted against him, and who gets righteousness counted to him. It's a, like a, a accounting credits and debits. So the good news is that the Old Testament lesson of forgiveness is God offers to wipe clean our ledger of sin and credit our ledger with righteousness by faith in the promise of the Messiah who would bear away the iniquity of sin and live a life of obedience on our behalf. Hear me, this 
non-imputation, not counting sin against the sinner, is the very essence of biblical forgiveness. The believer sins, but his sin is not reckoned. His sin is not counted. His sin is not accounted against him. So, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's taken our sin and put it on to Jesus. That's in the Old Testament. And then what about the New Testament? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. His, his account was all clean. He was perfect in every way. And he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get his righteousness. Do you see the transaction being taking place here between Christ and us? Psalm 32 is at the heart of the gospel of justification by faith. It led Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, to say that Psalm 32 was one of his favorite psalms because it was, quote, a Pauline psalm. That means that the Apostle Paul, when he explained the important doctrines of forgiveness, was drawing upon David's Psalm number 32. We learn from this psalm that a truly blessed person is not what you would expect. It's not the diligent law keeper will be blessed. It's that a sinner, a transgressor, one who commits iniquity, one who deceives himself into thinking he's fine, can be forgiven by God. That is amazing grace. Look with me now at the end of verse 2 and see the fourth and final aspect of forgiveness. It works itself out in a posture of somebody's spirit. You see, the fourth evil was deceit. And the lesson of forgiveness is that that kind of self-deception must be annihilated from a person's soul. David says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice this is not about lying to other people about your sin, though that would be wrong. This is about lying to yourself, thinking you're fine. That's what John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He said, if we say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. I'm reminded again of Augustine. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself a sinner. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That kind of deceit has to be gone from a person's spirit to be truly forgiven. We have to know that we are indeed sinful and need God's forgiveness. Commentator James Johnston explores this idea of deceiving ourselves. He asks the question, how is it that we lie to ourselves? He offers one way is we can become proud and think that we never do anything wrong. Whenever there's conflict or tension, it's always the other person's fault in the relationship. We can deceive ourselves and lie to ourselves 
by thinking God doesn't know about our sin because maybe it happened a long time ago or far away. We can deceive ourselves when we compare ourselves with other people. Well, yeah, I know I'm not as good as I could be, but I'm not like her. I'm not as bad as he is. I'm not like that mass murderer over there or whatever. We kind of justify ourselves. And instead, what we're doing is we're deceiving ourselves and living in our sin. We can lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves by thinking about the externals. Like, maybe you're a really good person. You come to church, you, you know, uh, put something in the offering plate, you sing the songs, and you smile at people and wave, but what's inside of your heart? The Bible says the heart is deceptively wicked. Above all things, it can deceive us. The blessing of forgiveness is for those who do not deceive themselves and do not lie to themselves about their sin. So self-deception has to be abandoned to experience this blessing of forgiveness. All right, well, we've looked at the first five verses of this psalm, but I want to conclude by examining verses 6 through 11, where we see the actions of the godly. The lesson David wants to teach about actions that godly people take. In this lesson about sin and forgiveness, David offers some application. In particular, these four actions. First, we see that they will offer urgent confession to the Lord. They will offer urgent confession to the Lord. I love how the New English translation puts it in verse 6. For this reason, every one of you, of your faithful followers, should pray to you while there is a window of opportunity. While there's a window of opportunity. You see, the godly are not expected to be sinless. Rather, they are those who believe God's promises and confess their sins to him while there's a window of opportunity. Dear friend, do not be foolish and wait to do business with God until tomorrow. None of us are promised tomorrow. The Bible says that life is a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. Confess your sins to the Lord urgently. And then note what happens. The godly person will enjoy, secondly, unhindered fellowship with the Lord. Unhindered fellowship with the Lord. This is another action of the godly forgiven saint. They're able to take refuge in the Lord. He is a hiding place to deliver them. Do you see that in verse 7 where David says, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The same David who in verse 4 was feeling oppressed by the hand of the Lord heavy upon him, has come to a place where he finds the presence of the Lord to be a shelter for him, a refuge for him. That is what confession and forgiveness can do. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then notice thirdly in verses 8 and 9, that a godly person will live a life of uncoerced obedience to the Lord. They'll live a life of uncoerced obedience to the Lord. For the kids in the room, that means that nobody's twisting your arm to make you obey. You're not being coerced into doing it. You're doing it freely. 
Now the voicing changes in this psalm in verses 8 and 9 where the voice of the Lord is now being heard by the repentant sinner. And the forgiven person hears the Lord say he will instruct and teach this repentant sinner and counsel him. I don't know about you, but I've, I've been around horses a little bit growing up, mainly during the summer times when I would go to a Christian horse ranch. And there's a lot of things you can do with horses. They're wonderful beasts of burden. But one thing you really cannot do is talk a horse into going in the right direction. You can kind of use your voice to get it moving, but turn right doesn't work. Okay, you can't just tell it what to do. You have to use a bit and a bridle to get it to go where you want it to go. What David says in this psalm is that a godly person is not like that. They are to go where the Lord counsels them. They go where the Lord tells them. They are to obey without having their arm twisted behind their back. Now this is fulfilled Of course, most importantly, I believe in the promise of the new covenant where the Lord promises that he will write his law on our hearts. Take out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. It's not obedience by force. It's a new heart, a heartfelt obedience. We do what we want. We want to and we long and we desire to be obedient from the heart. And then fourth and last, a godly person will demonstrate uninhibited joy in the Lord. Uninhibited joy in the Lord. As opposed to the sorrowful wicked of verse 10, the righteous of verse 11 are to be glad. They're to rejoice, shout for joy. And it's only natural if you think about it, isn't it? I mean, it's not hard for you to imagine if you were a prisoner on death row, sentenced to being put to death. And all of a sudden you got word that there was a pardon for you. The president had signed a pardon and you are forgiven, freed from the death penalty. You would rejoice. You would be glad. And yet we deserve God's wrath and punishment eternally. And instead we are receiving a complete cleansing from our sin, a wiping clean of all of our debts. No wonder the hymn writer called it bliss. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I, you hear this? I bear it no more. I wonder if he was reading Psalm 32. That, in, that sin is born away. That transgression is forgiven in the sense that it's born away. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Dear friends, I exhort you today, be glad in the Lord. One pastor has said, God is to be the garden of our soul's delight. There is no room for Christians who are not glad in the Lord. Because Christians are forgiven people. David's lesson of forgiveness is that it will make your soul happy. Free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Jesus has bled and 
There is remission, forgiveness, the penalty paid. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ has redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O friend, now believe it. Cling to the cross and what your, your burden will fall. It will be borne away because Christ hath redeemed us once for all.